Thanks, Greg, and it'd be useful if you keep that open uh, for the next few minutes. But before I start, let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the Bible. And we pray, Lord, that we would understand its message to us. Give us hearts that are responsive. Uh, may we see you, may we hear you in these words this morning. Amen. Who's the man? Who's the man? I can't talk about um, rugby or cricket today, but I was highly impressed with the England football team result on Tuesday night. It was a great result. Now, I have to apologise if anybody here is Italian, either you're sitting here or you're watching this on, uh, on the live stream. And also apologies if you don't really like football, but uh, never mind. Um, this uh, result, well, it sees England through to uh, Euro 2024 next summer in Germany. So if you don't like football, you really do want to escape uh, Europe next uh, summer. And surely, let me suggest, Harry Kane. He is the man. Did you see the game? Did you see that penalty, the way in which he spent ages looking after it, look whether it was right, whether you know, VAL was checking it and everything, but he stood there, calm, when he came to take it, absolute certainty, into the back of the net. And then his second goal, right at the end, where he went forward, took it past the forward, and he easily put it past the goalkeeper. Fantastic player. Surely Harry is the man. But then again, what about the performance of Jude Bellingham? Only 20 years old. And the BBC called Bellingham England's talisman. He drove us forward. He won the penalty. He had the assist for our second goal. Maybe Bellingham, he is the man. What do you think, Kane or Bellingham? Who do you think had the most influence on that great win? on Tuesday night. Well, enough of such debates here whilst I stand here in the pulpit. And if the Apostle Paul were here, he might even call us childish to even be thinking about such things at the moment because we really ought to spend our valuable time here in church considering the things of God. We should be considering spiritual matters instead of worldly matters. And did you know Paul said the same to the church in Corinth? Now, the Corinthian church, they, they thought of themselves that they were wise. They thought of themselves that they were mature and growing up. Now, they liked also to be known as spiritual. But in chapter 1, Paul has spoken of the divisions amongst them. Because the church are... They're, they're following various leaders who had been there. Some were now saying, well, they followed Paul. Some were saying they followed Apollos. And some followed other people. Some, some said they followed Christ. You see, the Corinthians, as we've learned so far over the last few weeks, they're obsessed with public speakers. And Paul says they're simply worldly to do so. They're certainly not acting spiritually with these divisions and quarrels amongst them. In fact, they're acting like kids. And now Paul begins chapter 3 by saying, let me read verse 1 for you, brothers, 
I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. Now that's quite a put down, you might think, but these criticisms are fully justified. The Corinthian church, it had been planted by Paul, and then after he had left, Apollos had come. And it does need to be said that the New Testament hints that Apollos was perhaps the finest preacher of the day, the man who you would love to listen to. But this, this just led to quarrels and jealousness amongst the church. You see, those who had been especially helped by Paul's ministry, uh, well, they slightly mistrusted those who felt blessed by the ministry of Apollos. And it worked the other way around as well, vice versa. The church thought that they were all clever. They thought they were all spiritual. And Paul says the opposite. They're actually worldly, mere infants in Christ. And then verse 2 speaks of their diet, where Paul says, I gave you milk, not solid food, for you're not yet ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. See, here's the evidence of where they were in their faith. Their diet is still baby food. Now, I remember when our son was fed in his high chair, he would sit there loving his mashed swede or whatever uh, other sort of um, food he was given. He had his arms stretched out like this all the time. It was very, very cute. It was very, very sweet when he was only, say, a year or 18 months old. It was all he was capable of taking at that time. Well, the Corinthians were no longer new Christians, but they were still immature Christians because they were still worldly. They were like children, not yet ready for solid food. They'd received the gospel message of Christ crucified, which was like milk for babies, but they'd failed to apply that message. They failed to, uh, to take hold of the word of God and to have it working in all areas of their thinking and their living. And so they were not eating solid food. And to a certain extent, it seems as though they'd even forgotten the original message they had received from Paul in the first place. Did Paul have proof for his accusations? Well, yes, verses 3 and 4. You're still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For one says, I follow Paul, and another I follow Apollos. Are you not mere men? You could suggest their behavior was more fitting, as you might see in the corridors of, of Westminster than the, a local church. That's pretty conclusive evidence of worldliness, that their influences are still in the world, and their influences are not solely on God. In particular, they're looking, they're looking only at outward qualities of their leaders, which are which is being man-centered rather than being Christ-centered. Paul does not doubt their faith, 
He does not doubt their conversion. He does not doubt that God's spirit lives within them as he calls them brothers. But Paul says they simply have not matured in their faith as they should have done. They're not acting in a grown-up manner. Perhaps to a certain extent they did not fully understand the gospel. You see, the whole of the Christian life should be shaped by the cross. Christ should be our greatest influence. Not someone on YouTube or Instagram who calls themselves an influencer, who's followed by millions and millions of people, those who might promote some product which they claim will change your life forever. Only Christ can do that. And it's only in the power of the Holy Spirit that we can continue to grow and mature in the Christian life. It's not through the personality of any church leader. A church leader, you see, is merely or only a servant of God. Let me read verse 5 to you. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who makes things. I've read the wrong verse, haven't I? Um, Verse 5. Sorry, completely lost where I was. Verse 5, I can't read it. Yep, only after all, he is only servant. Yeah, what after all is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. Now, Paul and Apollos were probably both very gifted leaders, but their status was low. Because they're only servants, servants to be deployed as the Lord Jesus thought best. Each assigned their respective tasks by their master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in, in, in verses 5 to 9, there is this image here of a field. Paul says, I, what did I do? I planted the seed. What did Apollos do? Well, he watered it. But look at verse 6. But God made it grow. God made it grow. Who's the man? Paul. Paul, who who planted the church so carefully, who perhaps um, spaced those seeds perfectly in the right area of some shade and some sunlight. Or was it Apollos? Is he the man who, who watered it just at the right time? Let me tell you, my son's got this app on his phone for when you need to water the plants. It's very, very clever. So he walks around the house and he says, oh, that one needs some water. He even told me one of my plants needed a bit more uh, bit of sunlight, so he moved it. Very, very clever. Well, Paul came first. Apollos came later. But it's God. It's neither the planter. It's neither the waterer who plays the decisive role in the field, isn't it? It is God who makes things grow. Farmers and gardeners, they can only stand back, can't they, and watch as the plants grow, and they can only count it as a privilege to be involved as we see who at work, who's the man. It's God at work. And it's exactly the same in Christian ministry. It is wonderful. It it, it, It makes the heart rejoice, isn't it, when we hear of people come into faith 
people understanding for the first time in their lives what Jesus has done for them and making a commitment to serve Jesus for the rest of their life. That is wonderful. It is a privilege to be part of that process, but it is not for the church leader to take the credit. All praise, all praise is due to God for shining a light, shining the light, which we were talking about this morning, shining a light into the heart of the unbeliever so that they can declare hallelujah as that penny finally drops. This is what God does, and he alone deserves the praise. And as a result, verses 7 and 8, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have, have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. The workers are just doing their jobs. They're just doing the task given to them by God. It makes no sense, therefore, to exalt any church leader, to make them into some form of a hero, as if they were responsible for what God has done in that person's heart. It is foolish. It is childish to, to pit one farm worker against another. Planter and waterer have one goal in mind, the growth of the crops. Both are necessary, but God makes the seed grow. And church ministers who are tempted to think that it, it all depends on them. Or us as church members who think that it all depends on that particular minister. Well, we need the correction of verse 9, don't we? For we are, are God's fellows workers. You are God's field, God's building. Brothers and sisters, we cannot take credit for the work being done. And there's no room whatsoever for competition amongst church leaders. Now, it must be said here that when he's speaking about being God's fellow workers, he doesn't mean we're fellow workers with the same power and authority as God. It means that church leaders are, are, are fellow workers, part of the same team with every other church leader. They all belong to God. Now, it is, of course, right and appropriate to acknowledge our gratitude for what our leaders do for us, how, they, how they've helped us. When I look back through my life, I became a Christian in my early, uh, early childhood, actually. Now, over those many, many years, since I was 11 to where I am now, almost 60, I can name certain leaders in churches or leaders at Christian camps when I was a youngster who have been a huge influence in my life. I do often speak about them, very fondly of them. Now, of course, some of them, some of them are paid uh, by the Church of England. Many of them are just lay people who are, are not paid. But all of them are only servants, fellow workers, part of the same team, doing the job, doing the task given to them by their master, the Lord Jesus. So Corinthian church, stop worshipping your leaders. 
Stop trying to put them on a pedestal. Instead, worship only God. Let Christ only be your influence. Who's the man? Jesus Christ. He's the man. Not Paul, not Apollos. Jesus who came not to be served, but to serve. Well, we move on in the verses from the realm of uh, farmers into builders. And that second image is found over in verses between 10 and 15. We learn here that a minister, a church leader, is to preach Christ. Is to preach Christ and only Christ. Verse 10 reads, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert building builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. Ministers, ministers in the church, they're not architects. They don't have that freedom to express themselves. They are builders. They're accountable for sticking to predetermined plans from the architect, from our creator, God. And the foundation dictates the shape and the size of a building. And God has already laid the foundation of the church, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid. Who by? Jesus Christ. Now, even once the foundation is in place, things can go wrong. At Corinth, all kinds of other builders were trying to lay some form of foundation. In a way, they could be called spiritual cowboys. And no one wants to discover your builder gets featured on Rogue Traders. Now, there are a hundred ways to build the church badly. It can be built on the personality of, 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 of the leader with large portions of charm, perhaps. With things like um, personality. But the way to build well is with repeated, passionate, spirit-anointed proclamation of Jesus Christ and only him and only Jesus crucified. And with this responsibility in mind, Paul leads those with responsibility in the church to that solemn challenge. What has been built will be tested I'm sure we remember back to those horrible scenes back in 2017 when Grenfell Tower suffered that fire. That fire burnt for several days. It, it dominated our news. Many people sadly died. And then there's been that subsequent very long investigation. And it's come out that there were many failings uh, in the building. There's a lot of things about the cladding. And I think the uh, cladding may have actually helped the fire burn more quickly rather than protect it. I think cladding's meant to protect it. And therefore, you've got to conclude, haven't you, that if that building had been built correctly, some of those lives may have been saved. Well, we need in the church to be using God's building materials. That's what verses 12 to 14 are telling us. And what are the good materials to be using? Well, they're gold. They're silver. Costly stones. Things like this which will survive the fire. In other words, that's having a, 
a ministry that is benefiting the foundation. But wood, hay, straw, they'll just go up in smoke, won't they? A church which is not built on Christ crucified will simply not survive. Look over at verse 15. If, if what that minister has built is burned up, he, the minister, will suffer loss by himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Now, that's, a, that's an expression about judgment. It's not saying whether or not a person's going to be saved or not, but Paul is suggesting that our good works will, um, he's not suggesting our good works will earn salvation. He's talking here about a judgment at the end of time for all those involved in teaching God's word. An assessment awaits every minister, preacher, home group leader, Sunday school teacher, whatever, anyone involved in teaching the word of God is going to be open up to a judgment at the end of time. Will the church last? Do the people within that church grow and mature in their faith because they receive cross-centered gospel message faithfully taught by their leaders? Or do they just receive garbage, personal opinions from the mouths of those who teach? God cares passionately about his church, but his leaders will be held to account. And the Corinthians, they were ter terribly wrong, weren't they? To squabble over their leaders as if they were acts in some talent contest. The foundation of the church needs to be christ crucified who's the man jesus christ is the man not paul not apollos jesus who was the cornerstone jesus who was the foundation of his church and subsequently it is the role of christian leaders to then build on that foundation and that foundation only to preach christ and only Christ, to teach the Bible and not add to it. And then the third image comes uh, of the church as a temple with God's spirit dwelling within. Verse 16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? Paul's talking there to the whole church. Paul is not thinking of just any old temple. He's thinking of the temple in Jerusalem. Symbolically, that was God's dwelling place. And he was very, very jealous for it. He guards that church with zeal. And if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. There's some very strong warnings here for every member of this divided Corinthian church. Mess with God's church, and that provokes God. Well, we've got these three pictures here, haven't we, that teach us the rightful role of leaders in the church, rightly understood. They show up, don't they, these divisions in the Corinthian church. They put their, the church in very bad light. They thought they were wise, but actually they showed their judgments were worldly. 
and the wisdom of this world, well, that's just foolishness to God. It is futile thinking. Jumping into verse 21, no more boasting about men. Why? To boast about human beings we know and admire in the church is just effectively blasphemy. It dishonors each person of the Trinity, the work of God the Father, the foundation of God the Son, and the temple to God the Holy Spirit. Verses 21 to 23 are worth looking at as well, where he writes, So then, no more boasting about men. All things, all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cyphus, or the world or life or death, or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. We belong to Christ, and since he owns everything, we share it all with him. Life, death, the present, the future, the whole world, it is all ours sharing it with him. Christ governs it to the best advantage until we inherit it at the end day. God has given to every Corinthian Christian, both Paul and Apollos, the Paul group. They, they effectively robbed themselves of Apollos' preaching and vice versa. Apollos' group, they, they were just they were robbed of, of Paul's teaching. Your ministers belong to you. Enjoy them all. Don't rob yourself by placing yourself entirely in one person's pocket, no, ma no matter how much you may admire them. So here we are at the end of chapter 3. We need to check ourselves because we can have the wrong attitudes. Uh, we can be de deploying the same attitudes they, they had. Let's not think of ourselves better than others because we're part of a, of a large church. Let's not um, pat ourselves on the back for the, the activities we hold and, and perhaps the money we, we raise. We do raise a lot. Instead, let us always give God the praise he deserves for his blessings to us. Let us thank God for every leader he has given us to bless each one of us over the years. And we especially need this morning, today, to, to allow Jesus to be our main influence in our lives, not somebody on YouTube or Instagram with millions and millions of followers. We need Jesus. We need Jesus because he's the man. It is him we need to follow each and every day. Let's make that our prayer now. Lord Jesus Christ, Forgive us, forgive us when we allow the world to influence us, to dominate our thinking and our actions. Instead, Lord, may we be a church which is centered on you, focused only on you. Thank you for our church leaders. Bless them as they bless us. Amen.